We believe better patient experiences begin with a commitment to every aspect of healthcare. This is Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. Hello and welcome to Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. I'm your host, James Kent. Thanks for finding us and tuning in. We have additional episodes, so if you want to stay up to date with all sorts of great healthcare-related content and thought leadership, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. Just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast content and you're set. You won't miss any future episode, and you'll have access to all our past ones, too. We're several months into 2021, and for those who thought the pandemic would be over by now, surprise, it isn't. But there is a sense that the finish line is in sight, although there appears to still be a lot left in the race. Vaccines are rolling out and people are getting them and slowly but surely things are starting to open up, but not everyone is vaccinated yet and children under the age of 16 are not yet eligible uh, to even receive a vaccine in the United States. So until the day when every person who needs a vaccine and wants a vaccine can get a vaccine, we are still going to have to deal with the pandemic, uh, like it or not. But as we get closer and closer to the moment when the pandemic is largely shaped and controlled by vaccinations, a new phase will begin, and that is addressing the lingering challenges and concerns brought on by this pandemic and how we manage healthcare processes and continual health concerns uh, caused by coronavirus. I have a ton of questions for my guest today, so let's dive into it. David McFarlane is here. David's the Marketing Communications Manager for MedSphere. David, how are you doing today? Hi, James. I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. Uh, David, there's so much to unpack here with the pandemic, so we'll start broad and then get into more specifics. What do you see as the primary concerns and challenges after COVID-19 is largely managed by vaccinations? That's a great question. From my perspective, and I think it's important to, you've already introduced me, but it's important to to recognize that I am an observer of the healthcare system, like a lot of people. Um, And from my perspective, there are a handful of uh, primary concerns once it feels like the pandemic is managed. But at the top of that list, I think, has got to be the, the challenge of long covid We've got a number of people for whom this disease is um, something they're going to be have to be managing for weeks and perhaps months after it looks as though they're out of the woods um, and that their primary acute infection has abated. So that's going to be a real challenge for the healthcare system. Yeah, I've, I've read several articles on the lingering effects of COVID, uh, some very recently, uh, on people who, you know, have gotten the virus. And it said that as, in many as a third of patients who suffered effects from COVID are experiencing continual brain issues. That, that's obviously concerning. And it shows just how much we are still learning about this particular disease. And the fact is, we could be dealing with with the after effects of COVID on patients for months and, and possibly years to come. Uh, are healthcare experts and organizations uh, talking about this? Are, are we prepared for what's to come? Uh, they're certainly talking about it. I mean, everyone who covers healthcare is talking about it. You may have seen some of the more disturbing articles in major publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post. There are uh, isolated incidents, and, and these this is really uncommon, but people who are going through uh, things like a psychotic breakdown that lasts a few days, 
um, and having sort of these terrifying episodes that are associated with them having contracted COVID. The good news was that this is a very, very, very small minority of the people who've ever actually had the virus. And these things tend to be, tend to not be enduring from what I've read. So this is a short episode. It's still really disconcerting. Sure. And it suggests that healthcare, yeah, and that, that healthcare doesn't really understand, as you already said, the virus completely. Is the system prepared for it? Um, they are talking about it a lot. They are certainly preparing for it. I don't know that the healthcare system is geared up to deal with the number of people that might need long-term care because it could be a significant number. Well, yeah, I mean, because again, this is a whole bunch of we don't know. I mean, what happens, let's say, a couple of years from now when suddenly we start seeing a pattern of maybe a very, very small amount of people who you know, had effects of COVID and suddenly they have some other issues going on. Um, you know, it's not something that I think we can just put to bed when we feel like the pandemic is under control. Now, you know, I saw a really interesting article yesterday. I, I, I can't remember the origin right now off the top of my head, but the gist of the article was you have a patient who 10 years down the line goes um, into the hospital because they're having pulmonary issues. And they ask them about their COVID vaccine and they say, well, I was never vaccinated. Um, and so some healthcare experts are seeing the long-term potential in something like that. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, the numbers that it would uh, impact at that point would, again, be relatively small. But you still have a decent number of people who are still dealing with COVID-19 many, many years after the fact. I don't know, know that anyone's saying that that's a certainty, but a lot of people are saying that that's a possibility and that we need to more, learn more about the virus in order to try and combat it and understand how it might behave longer term. Yeah, you know, I had a question that I was going to ask a little later on, but I think maybe as a good tie into what we just talked about now, uh, maybe I'll bring it in, is how do, how do you think uh, EHRs can play a role in our post-pandemic world and in preparation uh, for, you know, a potential next pandemic in the future? Yeah, the the benefits of each of EHRs, I, I think the benefits that we've sold uh, to this point are in the ease of use and the access of patient information right there at your fingertips. And, you know, you don't have to go looking through file cabinets to get old records and things like that. Well, and the other thing actually is billing, which is what they were originally um, designed to do. And then they were sort of engineered outward to bring in a lot of the clinical functions that they also perform. But as EHRs have evolved, it's been become really clear that one of their biggest benefits is the use of big data, huge data sets that you can then scan through to look for similarities in patient backgrounds, um, symptoms, in how bodies react to the symptoms in response to certain uh, medicines, things of that nature. So EHRs still provide that promise. The thing that we're up against now is that they're not yet great at um, exporting data. Mm. When COVID started, there were some observers and some within the industry who are a little disappointed at the difficulty of extracting data from EHR systems. They offer a lot of promise and they offer a lot in the immediate term, but we got we do have a lot of work to do, to be completely honest. But I think it's important uh, that that work get done because the nature of this virus is so, it's kind of bizarre if you think about it, the fact that it affects so many people so differently 
and, and from so many people that may be completely asymptomatic to uh, those who get very, very, very sick, to people who have these lingering effects, uh, to people who may show up with an effect six months, a year, two years down the road. Uh, I mean, it really is scientifically fascinating, but it seems like the problem that we have, and we'll just focus on you know the healthcare system in America because of the siloed nature and fractured nature, there isn't a way to coordinate all this data and, and share it and try to figure out, you know, what's what's going on with this virus and how to treat it and to know, um, you know, these common things of, hey, this group of people had this and this group of people had that and this is how they're treating them over here and this is what we're doing over here. Yeah, it's really proving a challenge. And obviously, it's going to prove to be a bigger challenge because the variants seem to emerge so rapidly. So now we're already dealing with the the UK variant in Michigan is exploding. It's going to mutate, continue to mutate as we try and treat it with a vaccine. It, as uh, I, as one healthcare professional I read said, uh, evolution is not on our side because it's <laughs> going to evolve the whole time. We're trying to fight it. Well, yeah, and then of course, you know, in the United States, we have three approved vaccinations and just today as, as as of this taping one of them gets a pause um due to some potential i mean obviously very very rare and minuscule amount of cases um from the johnson johnson vaccination but it just shows you that all of this is happening very fast very new people are reacting to these vaccinations in different ways i mean we all now know somebody or multiple people who have received both doses of or or one dose of a vaccine and you hear their stories and i don't think that any two stories are alike about how they reacted to the first dose or the second dose yeah it's really unusual I mean, I'm not an immunologist or a virologist, right? I, I don't know exactly if there's something else that compares to this, but because we don't have all, enough public information about uh, any other sort of vaccine process. And now we have tons of public information about this. I was fortunate enough. I've got both shots um, and really nothing happened. But, but um, you know, I know of friends and family who may have gotten the one shot from Johnson & Johnson, which is the one you're referencing that's been paused today. And they had some rough days afterward and they, everything got better, but there was no predicting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've run the gamut. I mean, I've, I had both uh, shots and I had Moderna, second dose. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a rough day, but then the next day afterwards, uh, you know, I was fine. My wife, she had the, the Pfizer. She's in healthcare. So she was one of the first people in our particular state to get it. And so she had Pfizer and the second dose that hit her pretty hard, but a couple of days she was fine. And then I've had some relatives. I don't know exactly which one they had, but uh, some people on the first dose, some people on the second dose, they they had some rough experiences. So it, it's pretty varying. And uh, I don't think there's any pattern that you can kind of put your hat on and say, oh, well, this is what to expect. Um, aside from- Not yet. No. <laughs> not yet. Right. Right. I mean, it's still very new. I mean, if we, it, it feels like we've been vaccinating people for, for years, but it's really only been about four or five months. So it's a very small period of time. Yes. And the important thing to recognize is that with, uh, particularly with uh, Pfizer and Moderna, this is a new technology. Right. So this is the first time that the technology, even though it's been studied for decades, it's the first time it's actually been utilized in a public vaccine, which has obviously given a lot of people uh, cause for concern. Um, even though the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies themselves 
obviously feel fairly confident that it's perfectly safe. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I guess it's a, you know, we're talking about everything on the show today, but, uh, you know, it's just an <laughs> interesting tidbit on this. My, you know, my wife, she's in healthcare and a small part of her job, she's helped out many times in the vaccination clinic at the hospital. And so she's vaccinated a lot of people and she has encountered people. We live in more of a rural community, but there are people that aside from their childhood, and we're talking about people maybe in their 50s, 60s, this was the first time they have received a vaccination of any type since they were kids that they could remember. Yeah. So, you know, that just shows you there's a lot of people are not, they're not keeping up to date necessarily on different vaccinations or getting their flu shots, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, the flu shot's the only one I can really think of that, I guess, is a DPT was the sort of um, single shot you got as a kid. I think I may have actually gotten it again in <laughs> not too long ago. But it speaks to the fact that people don't get their flu shots and maybe to the fact that we've been fairly lucky in terms of outbreaks of new viruses over the last few decades. Yeah. Um, there have been some, they just haven't been nearly as widespread. There's MERS and SARS, which in my limited understanding is, are related to uh, the current virus that we're dealing with, although not identical, obviously. In addition to uh, people who got the coronavirus and suffered effects while they were contagious with with COVID. And then after that, there's another part of this picture that is affecting a lot of people that didn't get COVID. And I'm talking about the psychological fallout from the pandemic. And there's many facets to this, you know, from patients experiencing depression-like symptoms resulting from the virus, but to people who have lost loved ones uh, to the virus or had had loved ones in the hospital uh, to people who have been harmed economically by the pandemic. And then just uh, people having life altered by the pandemic and not being able to do the things that they did before the pandemic. Uh, has there been an explosion in demand on that aspect of the healthcare system? And how is healthcare handling those needs? My impression is that that explosion has not yet occurred. I know you're familiar with the increase in the use of telehealth. Yes. Uh, s starting with uh, the pandemic last year. And so telehealth is now probably here to stay, not just for treatment of, of you know, in, in this instance, for people with COVID and, and other clinical issues, but now it's also being widely used for the treatment of mental health issues. So, and it's proving very effective, actually, in terms of bringing together a patient and a therapist. That's the one way in which people who were already involved in treatment have been able to continue it, which is a great thing. My impression, though, is that that hasn't been widely used yet to treat what will be the fallout from the pandemic. And that I don't think we'll start to see. And I'm just spitballing. I, I don't think you start to see until late summer. And then um, maybe that will come together. Mm. And it just depends on exactly what's available to people. Because, you know, what we know about the mental health system prior to the pandemic is that a lot of people who were dealing with challenges in their life were not getting professional help, even though arguably they probably needed it. Yeah. So after the pandemic, will they have access to those services, even though their economic situation may not have changed, even though there won't be additional therapists available in their community and their state any more than there were before? And so that'll depend on some other things. The federal government is throwing a number, a lot of money at this, at trying to get the vaccines out there and then provide for uh, certain needs after the pandemic, that'll be administered through the states. And you can't exactly just get a whole bunch of therapists, you know, together at the drop of a hat and have them go out and treat people. So I, my fear is that it won't 
be any different um, in terms of taking care of people afterwards. And I just hope that that's not the case. Well, one thing, you know, we've seen come out of this pandemic and it's it's unfortunate, uh, but it's that intersection of science and politics because you name it, we've seen it. I mean, from politicizing of masks to disinformation about vaccines and how different states are rolling out vaccines. It's kind of bonkers. What do you think healthcare systems can do on this front to improve the situation? Can they, or is the the genie permanently out of the bottle on this one? How are things in your state? Has there? Um... I live in Vermont, and okay. so it's a pretty small state. It's the second uh, least populated state in the country, and when you're dealing with a very small population, kind of spread out, and at the timing that the pandemic happened, there really wasn't a ton of people visiting the state, and so you know our governor put together uh, mandates and lockdowns, we were really one of the first states to do it. And I guess sort of a point of pride, for a good majority of the pandemic, we have relatively low cases. And, you know, we've had a pretty smooth vaccination rollout. I think the numbers are like 45% the last time I checked of adults in Vermont are now vaccinated with at least one dose. That's pretty good. But lately, we have seen, you know, uh, an uptick in cases. Um, even in the area that I live in, we've we've seen some cases and, and outbreaks. But uh, we, we've been able to control it. I mean, even in my kids' school, there have been isolated incidents. And whenever that happens, they kind of shut the school down for a couple of days, make sure that all the contact tracing is done and that there's no chance of a spread before kids will go back to school. So, you know, we've had a few moments where the kids are going to school one day, then the next day they're going home, you know, they're staying home and doing online learning. You know, it's like, uh, I think everybody's dealing with this in one form or another. Right. Has there been a lot of public opposition to mask wearing? Uh to your initial question. Yeah, you know, I hear I hear that, uh, and of course I read a lot and I've talked to friends in different states and it's a different story everywhere you go, but we had a mask mandate in, I think, the beginning of June of 2020 and it's still in place and it's going to end, right now the target is, I think, July 4th, it's going to end and around here pretty much everybody... Uh, did it. Um, And I think because it came from the top down, you know, our governor held strong on that. You know, there was maybe some pockets of people that didn't want to do it here and there. But I live in a community where the hospital is a a big regional hospital here. So I think that a lot of people are connected with the hospital and know people who work at the hospital and knew people that went into the hospital because they were suffering from COVID. So that kind of really made people not want to go to the hospital. (laughs) because they got the virus. So it's like, well, I'll wear the mask. It's not that hard, you know? Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I I guess every state um, is experiencing something similar in terms of the divide. I guess we could probably break it down. This is the, I blame the internet. Yeah, well. (laughs) To be completely honest. (laughs) So um, the internet is Pandora's box of information and, and it's confirmation bias, you know, it's motivated reasoning. If I have something I believe and I want to find evidence to support it on the internet, then that takes about five minutes. 
And that's really complicated things because the amount of information out there from what look like reputable sources, but aren't necessarily, it's just, yeah. you know, reams and reams and reams of stuff. What I don't know what you're going to do about it. And because this is new, which we discussed already, because this is new, the information that was even disseminated from reliable sources initially, Dr. Fauci, Fauci didn't advocate for wearing masks originally. And I've talked, I just had lunch with a friend the other day who brought that up again and and we discussed, he's actually addressed that and he, you know, he's reversed that statement a long time ago. So why is it still got life on the internet? But it does. And of course, not everybody has this, right? I, I, my wife is in healthcare. She's been in healthcare for years. And whenever I had questions, right, because I'm not, I'm not a healthcare expert. And, and, and she'll say, well, I'm not a healthcare expert either, but, you know, she's certainly more of an expert than I am. But we'd be able to have these conversations. And one of the things that she said that's very normal if you're in the healthcare industry is when you're dealing with a virus like this that people didn't know, it, your, your information is going to change as you learn more. And so mm -hmm. in healthcare, the, it's totally understandable that, say, uh, an organization like the CDC gives recommendations. They expect that those recommendations will change with more information. And so that's Absolutely. what has happened. However, for regular folks who don't usually want to pay attention to anything that's happening in healthcare, because like, you know, I just want to stay away from the hospitals, what most people feel like, they're getting information right. that's constantly changing. And that lends to distrust, I would say. Yeah. I don't think there's any question of that. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, and the lack of trust in science and the lack of understanding that science actually sometimes changes when we have more information doesn't necessarily mean that the initial idea was completely wrong, only that's been adapted. I mean, that's a vexing challenge, really. Um, we don't yet have a good solution for it. So, I mean, back to your question about healthcare, is there anything that the healthcare systems or healthcare in general can do about it? I think just stay the course, mm. really. If you, if you make a statement initially and it ends up having to be altered later, just stay the course. I keep explaining over and over again to your community that this is what we thought initially and we got new information and this is what we're doing now and keep encouraging people to come in for a vaccine and promote the numbers. I mean, as much as you can through local media, yeah. talk about how, how many people have been vaccinated, uh, one dose and, and or in both doses. Talk about the impact of that. This, uh, the CDC's um, self-reporting tools are somewhat problematic because I think people have self-reported more than 2,000 deaths as a result of the vaccination, but officially there are none. Right. So it's a matter of just putting the information out there as frequently and as reliably as you can. And I think we're already seeing that people's attitudes about the vaccine are starting to change as they're seeing the number of people who are getting vaccinated. And as they're talking to friends and family members who've gotten the vaccine and seem to be fine. So I think that by summer it may change dramatically and that a lot of the health systems that are trying to get their communities vaccinated are playing a, a big role in that. Yeah. I mean, I hope that people don't get clouded. I mean, obviously today there was a setback with the Johnson Johnson vaccine, but putting it in perspective, it, there's a couple of things there. One, very, I mean, millions of people have received that vaccination and are fine. Uh, this is like a, a, a very small amount of cases that there's an issue. Six. And then they're researching it. They put a pause so that they can make sure that it's fine. I mean, but I, I'm sure that, you know, for the millions that are fine, people always focus on the one or two bad things that happen, right? Um, so hopefully we can um, overcome that. And hopefully, 
as they do the research, they'll be able to get that back in because we certainly need that vaccination uh, to happen because that's a single dose. So you're going to get a lot more people vaccinated, you know, quicker. And, you know, when I heard that news today, I was just like, oh, you know, we're so close in our state. We're getting closer and closer to uh, all people over the age of 16 being able to get vaccinated and was looking forward based on the news that probably early this summer, my soon to be 13 year old will hopefully be able to get the vaccine. And then I'll just have one uh, remaining child who's under 10 who will have to wait until that's approved. But, you know, just you're thinking of that day when all of your family and you can go and, and, and do the things. And, and then, you know, like I said, then, then it's, then it's going to be picking up the pieces of this thing because once things are open and people are doing, that's when you're going to see, well, what doesn't open again? And that's when you're going to really see what you've lost. But uh, another topic that I wanted to bring into our discussion, uh, non-COVID related medical procedures. You know, at the start of the pandemic, most elective procedures were shut down to allow hospitals time to uh, get their sort of COVID plans in place. And, And that eventually subsided. But for myriad reasons, I don't believe elective procedures are back up anywhere near what they were at pre-pandemic levels. And I suspect there's a backlog of procedures waiting to happen still. How is that impacting the healthcare system from both a bottom line perspective and a resource perspective? Well, I think we're now familiar with the bottom line perspective. They've lost billions um, over the last year and they've managed to do okay. I mean, a lot of um, clinicians who were performing some of these elective procedures have been drafted to do other things related to COVID. And some actually may have had their hours cut, and there have been some controversies uh, regarding things like that in some health systems. But the first, for the most part, as from what I've been able to tell, hospitals and health systems have effectively managed this actually quite well, even though they're just hemorrhaging cash, just hemorrhaging so much money. I would expect that as these elective procedures become available again, and they, uh, I'm in Salt Lake City, and they are starting to become more available here, um, it's going to be kind of slow at first, and then you know, they'll start to open things up again. You know, it's the same problem in some ways with uh, mental health professionals. You can't really draft um, more doctors to do um, additional elective procedures. So things are going to get scheduled out for a while before these hospitals and health systems are again caught up and are basically offering uh, procedures on the same schedule that they did prior to the pandemic. Well, you know, on this pandemic, we, I think we've all now, we, we, you know, we've experienced our first big, super major, you know, hopefully only every 100 years or maybe even longer event. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, I know. We, <laughs> so it's, gonna, it's not going to be 100 years before the next one. No, that's, the, that's the unfortunate reality. I think that's, you know, I think we now see, uh, you know, the forest through the trees. Uh, and, you know, I would say that we're probably not going to get an A grade on our overall response to this one. Um, I think we've seen some varying degrees of excellence within our healthcare system to address the problem, uh, given the lack of preparation they had to handle the pandemic. But the, the big question is, have we learned our lesson? Is America any better prepared to handle the next pandemic as they were with this one? I don't think there's any question, but that we are better prepared. Yeah. And in the sense that when you go through any traumatic experience, if nothing else, you're emotionally better prepared for something similar the next time it happens. And if there was confusion and exactly how to deal with this when it started, there would certainly be less confusion if it were to happen or something similar were to happen again. And while the initial response to the pandemic wasn't great, the vaccination effort has been stellar. 
So that suggests right there that just some of the organizational um, mistakes that we may have made as a nation last year at this time roughly um, may have been rectified in marshalling all of our resources to try and get people vaccinated as, as rapidly as possible. So there would still be questions um, about resources, about um, where we're sourcing things like masks. It's been well documented that there aren't domestic sources of masks. We had one mask manufacturer in the United States when the pandemic started. I don't know that there are any more now. So that would obviously something that would probably should be rectified. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are other resources besides masks that became obviously necessary during the pandemic and things that should be evaluated after it's more effectively managed. Do, should we be making stuff here at home to try and compensate for them? You know, we were talking about masks a lot on this, uh, this program, I, I don't know if I ever want to take my mask off again. I got to tell you, I, I haven't been sick since the pandemic started. And I usually good for two really bad colds a, a year. And, I, you know, I kind of like not not being sick for like three weeks at a time. I spent some time living in South Korea for a little over a year. Um, and a lot of um, Asian populations, especially in the large cities, wearing a mask is wearing a mask is something that many people choose to do. I often was under the impression that they were wearing a mask because some of those cities tend to deal with a lot of pollution and things like that. But then, you know, occasionally you'd see people of Asian descent in the U.S. wearing masks as well. And I thought it was more of a cultural issue. And now it makes a lot more sense as a sort of a public health issue and, and an awareness of public health when you're in a large city and there are a lot of people that are living so close together. And from that perspective, it now makes a great deal more sense to me than it ever did before. This is kind of always like a kind of a tough discussion when we're talking about the pandemic, but uh, you know, you mentioned telehealth. That's something that's a mainstay now. Um, that's something that obviously was hard to get adopted prior to the pandemic. And then suddenly it was like, well, we need it. And suddenly it's here and, and it's it's not going away for sure. Um, what else can you tell me on the positive side of things? Are there any other new adopted practices such as telehealth that are mainstays now? And, you know, what can we take away from this experience that you see moving forward can make a positive difference in our healthcare system? Well, I think that telehealth is, is the primary technological change, although EHRs are getting a good look, as we discussed previously, in terms of how they're structured. And as I mentioned previously, extracting data and making that more easily, making that an easier process and making relevant data more accessible, that has to be a priority moving forward as well. Also, we need an actual healthcare IT system from a national perspective. Mm. Um, that's also has become obvious. So uh, one of the liabilities of having several, many, numerous healthcare IT companies is they don't always communicate with one another real well. Sure. Part of the obstacle is technological. Um, you have to build um, interfaces and things like that to make everything talk to one another. And then you have to map fields and, you know, it's fairly technical and complicated, but some of it's just institutional and organizational too. I mean, some EHR providers don't want to communicate because you want to maintain a stranglehold on information and um, it sometimes strengthens your sales position. Um, and those are things that the federal government is in a good position to mandate. If you have an electronic health record, you have to make it communicate with the rest of them mm. in a way that uh, facilitates data extraction. And they have done some of that, but they haven't necessarily followed up the policies that they put in place with, the, they've established the carrot, but not necessarily the stick, to put it that way. It's kind of like those old format wars, VHS, beta, something has to win out. So if we can get an EHR system that everybody can play together, uh, it could benefit all. 
Yeah. And that was actually uh, an analogy though. Uh, I mean, that, that analogy is often used in discussing different types of technology. The only difference being that in this case, we're talking about, you know, the public health system and actually people's healthcare and lives. So the urgency ratchets up a bit. Yeah, Dave, we're going to wind down our conversation now. Before we go, though, is there anything else uh, related to the pandemic, uh, healthcare response, uh, anything at all that you'd want to discuss before we go? James, I want to go back to two things we discussed previously that I think uh, we're going to be dealing with for quite some time. The healthcare system in the United States is not going to change dramatically. The only thing that would change it dramatically were if the federal government to implement the healthcare for all system or something like that. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon. So the things we're going to be dealing with that kind of seem that seem to impact the everyday lives of many, many people are the behavioral health system. Now in most American cities, we're dealing with large homeless populations. Uh, Many of those people are mentally ill or dealing with addiction issues. And it, they're just not sufficiently addressed yet. So we've got um, deaths of despair in certain parts of the country. The mental health and the addiction issues of a lot of our, our fellow citizens need to be dealt with more effectively. And the healthcare system has to be obviously a, a part of that conversation. The pandemic shined a bright light on how hard it can be sometimes to get that kind of mental health support. And it's an issue that we're gonna have to deal with effectively or we're simply going to see more people dying deaths of despair and more people on the streets. Um, and then the other thing is the, uh, the science versus politics issue. And this is a box canyon. I, um, I'm sure that there are professional political scientists who have theories about how we can better disseminate information so that there's less conflict and we can all be on the same page or close to the same page with regard to how we see what's true and what's not. But this is the product of the digital age, and it will play itself out over years and decades. And I don't know that anybody, uh, even um, technology futurists, have a good idea in how it ends. And it's going to impact healthcare because we can't agree on what's true and what's not. David, this has definitely been an enlightening discussion today, and something tells me this won't be the last conversation we'll have on the subject. Uh, If folks want to get in touch with Medsphere uh, to learn more about their solutions and services, uh, where should they go? Medsphere.com. That's easy enough. That's easy enough. Yeah. Please visit us. Uh, My guest today is David McFarlane, Marketing Communications Manager for Medsphere. David, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. James, thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. That was great. And thank you for tuning in to Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. After the episode, feel free to leave a rating or a comment and let us know what future topic you'd like to hear more about. We'll have more episodes coming your way in the near future, but until then, I'm your host, James Kent. Let's talk again soon. Mm -hmm.